0: Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Say good morning, Hillcrest. Great to see everybody this morning. Welcome to everyone again. Those of you that are with us here in the house at the Nine Mile Campus. To those of you over at Spanish Trail, we love you. Thank God for you. Look forward to seeing you guys in a couple of weeks uh, over there live and in person. Pray that you're doing well. And to those of you that continue to worship with us wherever you may be online, we're so thankful for our online community that gathers very faithfully in these important days uh, from Sunday to Sunday and from Wednesday to Wednesday, thank you for your faithfulness and it's a joy to be able to greet you uh, from the church here this morning. Uh, I'd like to call everyone's attention, wherever you may be, to the book of First Peter once again this morning near the back of your New Testaments. There's a pew Bible in front of you if you need it. Or you may have one on your phone or, like me, brought one with you. Wherever the case may be and whatever the case may be, find the book of First Peter. If you've gone to Revelation, you've gone too far, but not too, too far. Come back to the left just a little bit. First Peter chapter number 3. We're in a series of messages where we're looking at the core convictions of our faith. Something that I think that every believer ought to be able to articulate. And to help us toward that end, we have some confession, uh, confessions or statements of faith, creeds they're sometimes called. They kind of serve as a template to articulate in a very brief and summary fashion what it is that we believe as a people. One of the easiest things, but the most important thing you can say, is that you believe the Bible. And at Hillcrest, we believe the Bible. Amen. And we take our stand on the authority and the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Holy Scripture, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. But alongside being able to say you believe the Bible, it's very important for you to be able to say as well, and to articulate what it is you believe about the Bible. Now that could take a very long time if you get down into the weeds and start discussing the matters of your faith that are very critical and important to you. But there are some things that are first among equals, some absolute essentials. That together we as a people, if we're to live and minister in a unified kind of way, have to rally around things that are among the most important things. And that's where creeds can actually assist us and help us. And of course, we're using the Apostles' Creed, a creed that is the oldest and the briefest of all of the historic creeds of the church in use for well over 1,500 years. Most scholars think longer than that, somewhere around 1,800 years. And it's just as valuable and just as helpful today. And we're going through it pretty much kind of phrase by phrase. We're right in the middle of a discussion about what it is we believe concerning God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to a message today about the cross that I suppose if you boil it down, could be among the most important message types that I'll ever preach. Can you name me anything more important to open up a Bible and proclaim publicly than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? Now, one thing could be more significant, more important than that. If I had a thousand lifetimes to live, I could never fully unpack the glories, the splendor, the wonder, the significance, the importance of the cross of Jesus Christ. The crucifixion was indeed the most important event that has ever taken place in all of human history. So let's look for a few minutes this morning at the power of the cross. In the corporate world, companies spend billions of dollars every year in order to market themselves effectively uh, to their community, in order to increase sales and drive revenue. And a part of doing that is what corporate leaders call a effective branding. Now you all know what I mean by branding, don't you? Iconography, imagery, they come up with an image that they want to stick in your mind so that all you have to do is see the image and you know exactly what it stands for. I'm going to play a little teaser game with you this morning. Watch the screen. You tell me the first thing that comes to your mind when you see these images. First of all, there is this one. Nike. See, instantly you know what it is. You've got a picture of Michael Jordan flying through the air, getting ready to slam dump. How many of you... I've spent multiplied millions of dollars buying one of these products. Amen. Or how about this one? Oh, yeah, babe, right? I mean, anybody here pull through the drive-thru there this morning to get anything? Okay, very good. To buy your $1.50 cup of coffee, best bargain in town, right? Or to get your breakfast uh, double quarter pounder, whatever the case might be. How about this one? Apple computer, that's right. Anybody use an Apple product? I've got three of them personally that I use. That's right. And of course, they've got more cash on hand as I speak right now. I'm not making this up. They have more cash than the federal government of the United States of America. That's absolutely true. And so uh, maybe you'll buy some stock tomorrow morning. How about this? Starbucks, that's right. Now, I know many of you have spent billions of dollars driving through Starbucks. That's right. It's an icon. What about this? Oh, everybody. I'm surprised I didn't get multiplied amens. Amen. Or this one. Google, that's right. Or this one. Yeah, Facebook. I get that. I started out to use that because I'm convinced that is a tool of the devil. And see, it's not just companies it's also religious iconography, right? I could show you an image like this, for example. Islam, that's right. The, the star and the crescent. Or this image. That's the star of David, which represents the Jews. That's right. Or then I could show you this. And you would instantly know what that is. I'm convinced that that is the most recognized religious icon throughout the world Today. And what an unusual thing to choose as an image to reflect what it is that you truly believe. Because the reality is the cross was the most hated and feared instrument of torture that the world has ever known. I mean, nobody who ever witnessed a crucifixion, and it would be a very common thing to witness it, during the days of the Lord Jesus Christ, but nobody who ever witnessed a crucifixion, nobody ever saw one, whatever had dared to have imagined a pounding and fashioning a piece of jewelry to wear around their neck in the shape of a cross. Nobody would have ever thought to fashion a piece of jewelry to dangle from their ears or, or to have marked on their body in some way would have never thought, uh, they would have never thought it, would have never come to their mind to have crafted a piece of decorative art to hang on the wall of their home. Because nothing was more personally shocking to more people than witnessing a crucifixion. Cicero, the famous Roman politician, called crucifixion the most cruel and terrifying penalty of all. Now, here's the thing. For those of us Uh, In the house this morning and those listening online, if we've walked with the Lord for any significant period of time and we've pondered the spiritual significance of the cross of Christ, the cross itself becomes a wonderful thing, becomes a glorious thing. We understand the likes of the Apostle Paul when he says, for example, in Galatians chapter 6, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross is a glorious thing for those who've been transformed by it. But to those of the first century world of Jesus, even to most people in the world today, the cross is not something that they glory in, it's something that they find offensive. Something that they see as scandalous, and that's exactly why Paul says what he does at the beginning of his correspondence to the Corinthians, for example. For the message of the cross is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. That's right. To the religious and to the philosophical people of the time of Paul, faith in a crucified Savior was unacceptable and to most even repulsive. He says that the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. The word that's translated stumbling block in the Greek New Testament is the Greek word scandalon. We get our word scandalous from it. Something that is a scandal causes others to trip. And that's what the cross has done to most people who hear about it or who ponder it. It's a scandal to the Jews. And the Bible says that it's foolishness That's the word morion, (laughs) we get our word moron, or something that's moronic from it. The Jews looked for a Messiah coming with power and coming with might, and to them you start talking about a crucified Savior, a crucified Lord, a crucified Messiah? That would have made no sense. The Greeks were a philosophically-minded bunch. They. They valued wisdom and they valued knowledge as the great end all of life. And so to talk to them about a Jewish preacher who died on a cross being the savior of the world, to them was the most laughable thing that anybody could have suggested, it was nothing short of lunacy. And yet the very thing that's comical to the lost is crucial to the saved. Can I just say this morning, there's no such thing as Christianity without the cross. There's no gospel preaching without the cross. There's no understanding of Jesus. You can never understand Jesus apart from an understanding of the cross. And that's why, brothers and sisters, a critical part of the Apostles' Creed and an indispensable component of our faith is the statement that's found In the Apostles' Creed about the cross, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and descended to the dead. Now, one of the best places to gain an understanding of the cross, at least basically, I think, is the passage that I called your attention to just a moment ago, 1 Peter three eighteen, We looked at it a couple of weeks ago to kind of begin this focus on the crucifixion of Christ and the death of Christ. But as a way of reminder, let me show you what it says again, 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. In fact, we're going to put it on the screen. Let's just read it together since it's just a single verse. Ready? Together. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now let's just hang around that verse for a few minutes, the time we have left this morning, and let me just talk for uh, that time about some dimensions that we see about the cross, because in this one simple statement, you really have four dimensions of the cross that you can extract, and then they're all very critical and very important things you must understand to have a full understanding of the cross. The first is the reason for the cross. Peter tells us why there was a cross at all, and the reason for the cross can be simply summarized with this statement, Christ died for sins. Christ died for sin. Now, this verse reminds us that Jesus suffered, and he suffered greatly in his crucifixion on the cross, but it was a suffering that was purposive. Christ suffered for, for sin. Whose sin? His sin? No. He suffered for our sin. A couple of weeks ago, we delved into the agonizing suffering of our Lord under Pontius Pilate. But let me just be absolutely clear this morning, because you have to move beyond the suffering of Christ and understand fully the death of Christ, because there is no atonement for sin simply by someone suffering for sin. The important thing about Jesus and the atonement that he gives and provides for our condition of sin rests in his death. The sacrificial victim had to die. No death means no atonement. No atonement means no forgiveness. Christ absolutely suffered once for sin. But then you have to jump down to the last part of verse 18 to complete the thought. Christ suffered once for sin, being what? Put to death in the flesh. And it's that statement right there that's the most important statement in the passage. Because the death of Christ was what was necessary because of the disastrous effects of sin. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, top priority, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. You know why the gospel is good news? The gospel is good news because we have a Savior, a man that John the Baptist, his cousin, called the Lamb of God, who came to die in order to take away the sins of the world. And make no mistake, the most destructive force in the history of the world It's not a tornado, it's not an earthquake, not even a hurricane with 150 mile an hour wind force. The most destructive force in the world is human sin. And never forget it. Because with sin came universal death. With sin came universal guilt. With sin came universal shame. With sin came separation from God. And because of that, with sin came judgment. And the Bible teaches that the only remedy for sin it's only one. The only escape from the destruction and the ruin caused by sin is found in the cross of Jesus Christ, the cross upon which he died. Peter will say the same thing, for example, in 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's a euphemism for the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, purpose statement, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. The problem with sin is it breaks the law of God. It offends the holiness of God. So God's law has been broken with sin. God's holiness has been offended with sin. God's wrath has been aroused because of sin. And for God to remain holy, for God to be totally just, means that He can't just overlook the offense of sin. He has to judge it in order to remain holy. He has to judge it in order to be fully just. And to judge it means death because what does the Bible say? Romans 3 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. The Bible also says it in a different way in Hebrews 9. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And again, we sing a lot about the blood. We talk a lot about the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood that can never lose his power. But the idea behind the shedding of blood is what sometimes is called in the medical community is bleeding out. Because if Jesus simply had shed his blood, if Jesus had simply suffered on the cross, but not died, there would have been no atonement for sin. So the blood is only as effective as it was drained from the body of Christ, causing his body to cease to live. And so that's the first thing that we understand about the cross. The cross is important because Jesus took the judgment for us. And the beautiful thing about that is that it demonstrates not only the holiness of God and not only the justice of God, but when I look at the cross, I see the love of God operating at full throttle and never look at the cross without thinking of just how much God loves you. God's holiness requires that he judge sin and he does it, but God's love makes a way of escape for the offender, which is marvelous. That's the reason we sang that song this morning. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Because in the cross, we have a Savior who suffered instead of us. In the cross, we have a Savior who bled instead of us. In the cross, we have a Savior who died instead of us. The technical term is vicarious, a vicarious sacrifice which simply means substitutionary. God sent forth His only Son to be a substitute sacrifice. And so you have the holiness and justice of God working on one hand by requiring a death as payment for sin that had offended His holiness. At the same time, you have working the love of God, which instead of requiring the justice in the offender, sends a substitute to take the penalty In their place, so that instead of judgment, the offender can receive forgiveness. Is that not the greatest trade in the history of the world? This is how much God loves us. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son. So God judged your sin in the sacrifice of Jesus, so that rather than judging you, He could forgive you. Glory, glory to God for the cross. That's the reason for the cross. Jesus died for sin. But the verse also here in 1 Peter 3 teaches us the sufficiency of the cross. The sufficiency of the cross. And that's bound up in the statement that Jesus suffered and died once for sin. He died once for all. And by the way, this is what distinguishes the sacrifice of Christ from all of those Old Testament animal sacrifices, right? Just, I mean, every time you came to church as an offender, a sinner who needed the forgiveness of God, every time you came, you had to come with an offering of blood. I'd like to know how many billions of gallons of blood have been drained on Jewish sacrificial altars over the centuries. The problem was that an animal is no substitute for a human being. Animal sacrifices were always meant by the Lord as a temporary measure a means of atonement. They did provide a measure of atonement, but they were temporary measures because an animal's blood could only cover sin for a period of time. They could never purge sin from an offender. They weren't powerful enough to cleanse, and so they provided a temporary covering, and that's why they had to be offered pretty repeatedly time and time and time again because they weren't sufficient sacrifices, at least not for the long haul. But the sacrifice of Jesus was different And that's registered here. It was once. Jesus died once. In fact, the NIV expands the phrase to say once for all, which is the traditional language that you find in the book of Hebrews to describe the sacrifice of Christ. How does the author of Hebrews describe the cross? Superior. It's a better sacrifice than those under the old covenant of God. It's a superior sacrifice. The word once is a word that means one time, one time. In other words, when Christ died, his work was done. And that's why the most important cry you have from Jesus as he died on the cross right before he died, what does he say? It is what? It is finished. My death is complete. No, No sacrifice remains. It is done, totally completed, totally sufficient. It is finished. And this is why, by the way, once we're saved, once you know that you've been born again by faith in Jesus Christ, this is why you can know that you have security for all eternity in Jesus Christ. Because the cross is the complete work of God. There are no other sacrifices that remain. No more sacrifices need to be offered. And by the way, this is why if you could lose your salvation, if it were possible for a genuine believer to be born again and then somehow unborn again after they've been genuinely saved, here's what I know. Are y'all with me? Amen. You can never be saved again. You're irrevocably lost from that point for the rest of eternity. You know why? Because you can't get another sacrifice. Jesus came once to die. He is coming again, but he's not coming again to shed his blood for you again. So that you can be somehow saved again. No, he's coming in power and glory. And if you actually believe that you could be saved by faith in the completed work of Jesus on the cross. Only to then somehow to be lost again. You're making a huge statement about what it is you truly believe about the cross of Jesus Christ. You really don't believe that Jesus died for all sin. You really don't believe that Jesus paid it all in spite of what the song says. You don't believe that. If you could believe you could be saved and then somehow lost again, the cross is not sufficient. You're doing nothing but turning Jesus Christ into an Old Testament goat. Saying his blood is no more sufficient than the blood of bulls, goats, pigeons, or doves. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches once you express faith in Jesus Christ, because of the sufficiency of his cross, we are to use the language of the writer to the Hebrews, saved to the uttermost. The Bible calls it in the same book of Hebrews, eternal redemption. And last time I checked, eternal means like forever If you could lose it, how could it have ever been eternal redemption? Somebody say amen. It's not eternal redemption. It's provisional redemption. As long as you don't mess up bad enough. No. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, cleanses us from what? All sin. And all sin means all sin, past, present, and what? Future. That's right. So we believe in the sufficiency of the cross of Christ. Look at some of the language in Hebrews. I just love this. Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Would you say it out loud, please, together? Once for all, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I just don't know how anybody could misunderstand that statement right there. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cleanse us once and for all and forever from all sin. This is why the Bible says in 1 John 5, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. If you've trusted Jesus to save you, if you've come under the blood of Christ once for all as a sacrifice, you can know that you have eternal life. I do, and I hope you do too. The sufficiency of the cross. And then third, we have the reach of the cross. Bound up in this one statement, 1 Peter three eighteen. The reach of the cross. The Bible says Christ died the righteous for the unrighteous. Or the righteous instead of the unrighteous. Now again, we get back to substitution here. Christ is the sinless Son of God. Totally righteous. Totally pure. Spotless Lamb of God. And He died instead of you as an unrighteous, unsanctified, impure sinner. And so this is just very important. Singular to plural. The righteous one, Christ, died for the unrighteous many. That's the point of 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is another great verse in the Bible. God made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin, for us, instead of us, in our place, so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So, again, when you express faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting not your own goodness, not your own good works to get you to God's good graces and get God to accept you, but when you trust Jesus and His perfect work on the cross, there is a great exchange. Judgment is exchanged for forgiveness. Alienation is exchanged for acceptance. Sin is exchanged for righteousness. And it's that condition of righteousness that comes through the forgiveness of Christ that enables me to stand confidently in the presence of a holy God and it was precisely because Jesus was righteousness or was righteous uh, that that great exchange could take place because again not only can uh, an animal not atone for a human being but another sinner another human sinner cannot atone for another human sinner And that's why we had to have a unique sacrifice. In order to bear our sin, Jesus himself could not be carrying any of his own sin. And this is why we celebrate Christmas, brothers and sisters. For God so loved the world, he gave, he sent his one and only son. Christ Jesus came into the world, 1 Timothy 1. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, the Bible says. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. And that's what makes the sacrifice of Jesus acceptable to God the Father. Romans 5 is a chapter I come back to frequently, but look beginning in Romans 5 in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, the thing I like about that little paragraph right there, and if you're taking notes, I mean, just look at these, look at these words, weak and uh, sinners. And it's not in this passage. Oh yes, it is back in verse six, ungodly. So there are three words piled one on top of another while we were still weak, while we were still ungodly, while we were still sinners. All of that descriptive of the human condition because of sin, lost, depraved, ungodly, immoral, Unacceptable to a holy God, distant and alienated from a holy God. And in spite of all of that, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still not only sinners, but all of that other junk as well, Jesus still hung on the cross and died for you and me. That's the incomprehensible love of God. The cross was not a rescue mission for spiritual giants. And that's why we need to read Romans 5 pretty regularly to remind ourselves who we were and how helpless and hopeless we were because Christ didn't die for friends. He didn't die for spiritual giants. He died for sinners. Mark Twain said one time, having spent considerable time with good people, I can understand why Jesus liked to be with tax collectors and sinners. We have this bad tendency to just think too highly of ourselves. Pretty good guy. Well, not really. Not from a spiritual perspective. We're bad people who occasionally do good things. But it's that human badness that's inherently in us because of sin that causes us to be lost and far from God and that caused the Son of God to be required to die if we were to have any hope. God could have just left us to wallow in our sin. I'm not sure why He didn't do it. We could have just paid the consequences for our sin in ourselves. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that's what's going to happen. Because a holy God has been offended and somebody's got to pay. And you can either trust the work of Christ and let him do the payment for you. But if you die lost and far from Christ, having rejected Christ and his work on the cross, then you'll have to pay the price yourself. But the beautiful word of the gospel is that God does not give us what we deserve unless we refuse his gift. God gave us what we needed. And what we needed was a perfect Savior to die in our place. For God so loved the world, he gave. That's the reach of the cross. Christ died the righteous one for the unrighteous many. And then finally, we have the result of the cross. Why? did christ die to bring us to god to bring us to god that's what peter says now in a word we call this reconciliation the end result of the cross for the person who puts their hope trust and faith in the person who died on the cross the end result is reconciliation with god y'all know what it means to reconcile don't you Everybody's been on the outs with somebody at some time or another, and you've got to do that hard work of making the rapprochement and approaching someone and saying, you know what, We're, listen, I don't like this. I'm sorry. There's there, you know, it's been an offense, and I want you to forgive me. And the end result of that forgiveness is reconciliation. The word means to restore a relationship that's been broken, to restore a friendship. And it is, as it applies to God, Um, It's a restoration of the original relationship that humanity had with God. A relationship's been broken because of sin. Now, in Christ, that broken relationship has been mended. Enemies have become friends. It's been recovered and restored by the work of Jesus Christ. Prior to faith in Jesus Christ, you need to understand that. Y'all still with me? Say amen. You're in a hostile relationship with God. It's a condition of hostility. This broken relationship, and it goes both ways. Uh, The Bible teaches, for example, in the book of Romans, we want to keep God at arm's length. We suppress the truth about God in an effort to go our own way and do our own thing and remain, you know, independent from anybody's control. And so there is hostility this way and there's hostility this way because God is a holy God and he doesn't like sin. So we become enemies, the Bible says because of sin and the inevitable consequence is the wrath of God. And this is why you need an escort to come into the presence of God. Nobody just wakes up and decides that they're just going to waltz into the presence of God. You need an escort. Can you imagine what would happen if I tried to power my way into the White House, or I tried to power my way into the United States Capitol, or if I've tried to power my way into Buckingham Palace, or to the grounds of Augusta National Golf Club? Man, you don't, you don't do it. And listen, by the way, I've been to all four of those places, and I'm convinced that the highest security in the world is at Augusta National Golf Club. <laughs> you ain't getting into that place without an escort of some kind. you got to know somebody, right? And you have to, I mean, you might pay a ticket to go into one of those tourist attractions, but you've got somebody with you when you go in who's leading you through every nook and cranny of that place. No, you don't just go in by yourself. You don't just go in and help yourself. you got to know somebody that can bring you into the presence of a holy God. Speaking of golf, I was at the driving range not long ago. And a guy, I I was about beat to death in the heat. I'd swung and swung and swung and swung, and I was sweat through, and I'd had enough of pounding those balls and watching them, like, just bounce on the ground for the most part. And so I was about to finish up, and this guy came up to me, and I did not know him, and he just started striking up a conversation, and, and uh, that happens to me a lot. People run into me at the store to Target, and I don't know who they are, but they've watched us online, or they've come to Hillcrest or whatever, and so I'm not unaccustomed to that. My first thought was, well, this is a guy that's been to my church, or he knows somebody that goes to our church, or, or whatever, and... Uh, I, I, I didn't quite know what to think when the last thing he did was hand me a gospel tract. <laughs> he was the nicest guy in the world, just talking about every kind of thing, talking about golf, talking about how long he'd been a member of that particular course that I was at, and his worker is a retired guy. And the last thing he did, he started packing up his thing, put his bag on his shoulder, and reached in his pocket, Pulled that out, handed it to me. and He said, when you get a few minutes, I want you to take a look at some good news that's changed my life. And I assured him that I would. Because I've seen some wild gospel tracts. This was a good one. And right there on the front of it was an image of a cross and the statement, how to find peace with God. You know something? You know what made that a good track? Because the cross is the only answer to the question. How do you find peace in this life? Well, you got to know Jesus, like the bumper sticker, just as simple as it can be. Know Jesus, N-O, no peace. But to know Jesus is to know the peace that passes understanding. I love the cross of my Lord Jesus. How about you? In his wonderful book on the cross, John R. W. Stott, says that the cross reinforces three truths that we could never forget. Number one, the gravity of our sin. When you look at the cross, the first thing it ought to remind you is just how deep your sin is and how consequential it is in keeping you far from God. Number two, the cross reminds us of the wonder of the love of God. It reminds us of the gravity of our sin, the wonder of God's love, and then third, the necessity of God's grace. That apart from God's free gift in Christ, we would have no hope. The very best we have to offer God will never be enough. There's no self-help program to get you from earth to heaven. There's no 12-step process that can remove the guilt of your sin. The wages of sin is death. You need somebody that can raise you back to life again. And that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus paid it all. Can I have an amen? And that's why Jesus is your only hope. So, We believe in the power of the cross. And this is the message of the cross in one memorable verse. For Christ suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Thank God. For the cross, which delivers me from all sin. This is God's Word and all God's people said, <laughs> Amen. Put your hands together. Amen.